0: Now, go go to Isaiah 40. Next week, we're going to close out this little bit in Isaiah with with, uh, Isaiah 61. And then we'll, you remember I told you this whole series, we're talking about the sovereignty of God. We're going to slip over into Hebrews a little bit and slip over into the book of Revelation a little bit. And uh, I'm kind of enjoying this study and I'm really loving mining um, Isaiah. So Isaiah 40, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. Let me give you a little bit of background. You know... I hang around a lot with college students these days, and uh, it's interesting to sit at the lunch table sometimes with a college student who um, um, one of my friends and I will talk about, that they don't even know how ignorant they are. Fair? You know, that's the height of ignorance, isn't it? I mean, I know I'm ignorant, all right? But how would, it, how would it be to be ignorant and not know you're ignorant? Okay, okay got that. Um, so there, there are some that are kind of like that, that will talk about the book of Isaiah, and they'll say, well, obviously, Isaiah wasn't, was written by two different authors over a period of years. They will say um, chapters 1 through 39 sound like a totally different tone than beginning with chapter 40. And so it must be written by another Another person. They're two different authors. It's not, and so they kind of go after that in terms of the veracity of scripture. And what I want to say is have you read, have you read The Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis? And then have you possibly read Mere Christianity? You couldn't tell they were written by the same author, yet nobody questions whether or not both of those are written by C.S. Lewis. Could it be that some things have changed? And Isaiah's continuing to prophesy and comment. Well, that's certainly the the truth here. In those first chapters, he's talking about the threat of Assyria. Starting in chapter 40, he begins to talk a little bit about the threat of Babylon. And both of those things took place. You know? He also offers this wonderful message of hope. By the way, um, go with me real quick to John. Gospel of John, chapter 12. John doesn't have any problem with this. I think it's really interesting. John 12, somebody read 37 down through 41 from the Gospel of John. Listen to what John says. For this reason, they could not believe, because as obviously said, he has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts, so that they neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I will heal. Yeah, that's good. Who does John say wrote these two passages? Both of them. One of them comes from Isaiah 53. Who is kind of in this deutero Isaiah book that some claim, and and the other one it comes from uh, Isaiah six, which would have been in the kind of the the primary um, uh, writing by Isaiah. So I, I just find it interesting. Ev- I, evidently the the, uh, uh, the writer of the Gospel John the the. the St. John the Apostle believed that Isaiah wrote the book. Well, we're going to deal a little bit more with this today. As Isaiah 40 begins, it's going to begin with words of comfort to God's people, specifically to Jerusalem. Now, he's been talking about their hard service for the last several chapters, leading up to especially verse 5, 6, and 7 in chapter 39. But there's more in the future, he's going to say, than just... Kind of a, a homecoming from uh, Babylonian captivity. In fact, Isaiah 40 verse 3, this chapter we're in today, is going to talk about, um, it's going to talk about preparing the way of the Lord, and it really does some prophetic work based on John the Baptist. in, in Matthew 3, Matthew's going to connect the dots for us that what's being talked about in verse three and, and beyond is talking about John the Baptist and his work preparing the way for the Lord Jesus. Well, um, so what we want to kind of deal with a little bit here is um, uh, this issue that the Bible is telling us about hope for the future and that God is still in control. If Isaiah's predictions seem too good to be true, then perhaps his hearers need to reevaluate their view of God about whom Isaiah spoke. Maybe God was more than capable of doing everything the prophet said he could do. And you and I know, with the benefit of history, that he was absolutely right. Okay, let's start now. We're going to go down to verse 21. Steve, can I get you to read 21 down through 26? And we'll kind of get going here. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. He brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like snow. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see. There are two words I want us to think about as we kind of mine a little bit today, as we do a little spade work here. The word unfathomable, yet knowable. Unfathomable, yet knowable. I Can never fully understand the Lord's ways, and yet I can know Him. Let's talk about some of His um, sovereign, unfathomable nature here. The author seems to be, uh, the word that I put, once you put in the blank there, he seems to be kind of chiding the people of God. What's He chiding them about? It's interesting. I think He's saying, You ought to know this already. You ought to know this already. Look back at the same chapter, verse 12 through 14. Okay, We're going to back up just a little bit. Okay, Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or who has his counselor, has informed him? With whom did he consult, and who gave him understanding, and who taught him in the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and informed him of the way of understanding? Did anybody have to inform God? Is is his understanding lacking? No, that's the implied answer to that. A um, long time ago, I, w- I was working with some discipleship groups. We would always work on um, that. There's a passage from the from the end, three in three verses or so of Hebrews five, where he says, um, "Though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again." You need milk, not solid food. And he says, you ought to be dining on solid food, but you're still on the bottle, he says. It's the idea that he's kind of frustrated with them here, saying, you ought to know this. What is it that this that they ought to know? This is important for us. God is in control. Sovereign over all this stuff. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of go a place you may not want me to go today with this. But what he wants them to know is that God has not lost power. Okay? Now, the prophet here seems to refer uh, in verse 22, he's talking about all these kind of large, grandiose things. He's talking about um, relative size and scope of things in the universe. Okay? Now, uh, go to chapter twenty-nine. Somebody read verse fifteen and sixteen. Just go back a half a dozen pages. Twenty-nine. Somebody read fifteen and sixteen. Woe to those of you who go to great depths to hide good plans from the Lord. Who do their work do their work in darkness and think, Who sees us? You turn things upside down as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. Show what is formed. Say to the one who formed it, Who's the potter and who's the clay? Uh, Is that a rhetorical question too? Who's the potter and who's the clay? Uh, Literally, that ludicrous example here. I read a story this week about a guy by the name of E.O. Wilson. Uh, He loved the great outdoors as a youngster. He became a fisherman. He loved to go fishing. He was born in 1929, and this meant that there was no electronic gadgets to keep him in the house, so he's all, all the time out fishing. Well, one day, his pleasure turned to pain when he injured his eye with a fish hook. Um, yeah, boy, made me groan too, while he was fishing. And he didn't tell anyone about it, so his parents eventually took him for surgery because a cataract had kind of formed over this eye, and that eye would never be the same. But what was interesting is he compensated with his other eye, um, he ended up not only with full vision in his left eye, but it, it, and really only with, with vision in that eye, but with sight in that eye that tested at 2010 on the eye chart, so better than 2020. What that resulted in is that he had the ability with this one eye to see intricate details of the smallest kind, and he was liked to be outdoors, so he started studying insects smallest wonders of nature, specifically butterflies and ants. And Wilson became one of the world's foremost entomologists. But here's what he said. Okay, now remember, he's lost an eye. He's looking at all this detail with the other eye and learning some of these most wonderful things about God's creation. And he says this. He's de- he declared, for the sake of human progress, the best thing we could possibly do would be to diminish to the point of eliminating religious faith. Isaiah talks about blindness here. Which blindness is worse? The one that happens as a result of an accident or or some birth defect? Or is it the blindness that I choose? It's all around me. For this guy, the intricacy of God's creation was at his fingertips his entire adult life. And yet, We need to just put God away. It's not serving us well, that thought, he says. I find it really, really intriguing, maybe you do too, that the worst kind of blindness is the person who just refuses to see. Okay? Now, that's what we're talking about here. Talking about the size and scope of everything. And he's putting us... uh, Isaiah is putting us as a people kind of into a perspective. Uh, when the Lord looks down, he says, and by the way, there's some indication here that the Bible didn't get it right about the world being round. You notice that in this verse? talks about the, the uh, um, how does he express it here? It's pretty pretty good. Um, sits above the circle of the earth. I think that's interesting. That could refer to something else, but some theologians think that might be... So, interesting. But as God looks down on us, what does he see? Grasshoppers, he says. (laughs) Okay? In other words, it's just putting the size and the scope of things in perspective. Now, verse 23, I want us to read again. I'm going to read it from the New American Standard. He, He it is, he, capital H, God. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Now, does this mean... What does this have to say to us about about kingdoms and leaders and governments? Does this mean that God doesn't care? I don't think you can go there. In other words, uh, if you caught what it said here, he makes the judges of the earth meaningless, okay? It doesn't mean he doesn't care. It does mean that a sovereign God makes the idea of a sovereign nation kind of laughable. Can I say that again? If God is sovereign, the idea of a sovereign nation is a little bit laughable. Okay? Now, we live in what we declare to be a sovereign nation. But who is ultimately in control? Is it governments is it kings, leaders, presidents, etc.? I don't think so. Now, a lot of times what we read in the paper makes it seem like someone else is in control besides God. And the people, men and women of faith, need to be in prayer about this earnestly. But I'm going to tell you this: you're not going to like me right now. God is not chewing his fingers over the election. He's not. Like most of us are. Can I be honest with you? Most of us are. God is... He's looking down on all, all this. He's drumming His massive fingers. But He's not chewing His fingernails, okay? Why? Because God is sovereign. Okay? Like it says, Ellie, are you taking me on? No, Okay. It literally is... Can you imagine how many times in the history of mankind God has said, "Well, oh, there they go again." <laughs> okay? It really is true. Thank you, Ellie. You're always, you're such a good theologian. You help me so much. <laughs> mm-hmm. Look at look at chapter 40 verse 17. All right? All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. That does that mean he doesn't care? No. It just means the things that Give us heartburn, don't give him heartburn. Okay? I'm going to tell you, there's some things that he's really concerned about, and it probably ain't Washington. Okay? Well, it says in the song, Kings and Kingdoms, kings and kingdoms yeah. will all pass away. Bill and Glory here a couple weeks ago? Kings and Kingdoms will all pass away, but there's something about that name. Okay? All right, just I'll, I'll pass by politics for a while now. All right, verse 24. Uh, there, there's a, there's a, Something invoked here that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. That thing's is really important. Look at verse twenty four again. Scarcely have they been planted. He's still talking about governments and kingdoms. Scarcely have they been planted. Scarcely have they been sown. Scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth. But he merely blows on them and they wither. And the storm carries them away like stubble. When uh, New Testament people read this, they thought Rome was going to last forever. When, when Isaiah wrote this, he thought either Assyria or Babylon was going to be that, you know, in some ways that one that lasted a long time. And it didn't last long at all. I find the, interesting the word here that's used in in that verse, in the verse that we're, we're dealing with here, which is verse uh, 24, it's it's does your Bible say that this the kingdom will take root and then it'll be blown away? That word root, guess what? Is the same word that we talked about in 11.1. One. Somebody go back and read 11.1 One for us? Remember when we talked about 11.1 One a couple weeks ago? A sheep will come the A branch will bear fruit. The same word. The branch, saying it'll take root. I think this is a play on words somewhat. Where Isaiah is saying, you want to you count on something that to take root is going to last? Go back to the branch. Go back to the root of the tribe of Jesse. That's the one that's going to last. If you want to hang on to something, hang on to that branch. The rest of them are going to be will not be here at some point. I find it really interesting. So here's what you can put in your blanks: His root will flourish; others will blow away. Now, by the way, who's the branch? Better not pass by that before we clarify that. Who's the branch? Jesus. Remember the branch of Jesse, and we talked about why is it not. The branch of David, all that, yeah. Jesus, all right. Okay, verse 25, there's some questions being asked, all right? Who's asking them? God is, okay. If your Bible's like mine, the, the name, the pronoun me is capitalized. What does that mean? It, the big me, the big me, okay. I am. That's what is that. Okay, so he says, he says here, to whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal? says the holy one. Now the answer to the question here is who's saying this? The Holy One is saying this. Would Isaiah know anything about the Holy One? It's interesting, by the way. Isaiah uses this phrase to describe God, the Holy One. He uses that phrase more than any other biblical writer. A half of the usages of the Holy One in all of Scripture occur in the book of Isaiah. Half of the references of the Bible that talk about the Holy One come from Isaiah. Not only that, but if you go back to read Isaiah 6, Isaiah encountered the Holy One. I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and His his train filled the temple. Remember that whole story. He knows who the Holy One is. So he's quoting here. The Holy One is kind of asking these rhetorical questions. Who is greater than me? Who is more sovereign than me? And then, verse 26, he gives us kind of an argument here for the sovereignty and, I'd put the word supremacy here, of God. All right? He says this. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. By the way, this was centuries before Hubble. Okay, Have you seen the commercial on, it's probably late night TV, but the commercial where it's called the International Star Registry? Where you can, I'm thinking about doing. Don't tell Rhonda that I'm thinking about doing this for her birthday next year. <laughs> Having a star named after her, okay? Remember, you can name a star and then give the give the certificate to your loved one. I'm thinking, I would have to sleep in the garage for six months if I gave her. <laughs> for one of the reasons, who calls the stars by name according to the Bible? Not me. And not some clown who's making money on registering all this stuff. Okay? God calls the stars by name. He knows where they all are. There's never been a supernova that's burned out that he wasn't aware of. Oh, I lost one. No, isn't it? Okay? Isn't it incredible to you as it is to me? This is an argument here for God's supremacy. Okay, let's read some more verses. Somebody go to 27, read down through 31, and I'll try to get us ended on time. Anybody read it? John, can you get it? You see why I like this? In context, you've probably heard 28 through 31 your entire life. But in context, isn't it even more beautiful? Talking about the, the ob- absolute, raw, awesome, sovereign power of God. And it begins here in verse 27 then by making a personal application. Literally Isaiah is saying something like, if God cares for the stars, won't he care for you? If he's got all that figured out, don't you think, as his people, he would care for you? Phil, I saw a tear this morning as we were talking about your daughter. I can't imagine the worry over the last several weeks. God hasn't lost track of her. You know? He just hasn't. And he's not going to. Janie, it was good to see you walk in this morning and you told me you're feeling great. And I know we don't know the outcome yet of the procedure they did a few weeks ago. October sometime, we'll know. Okay. But I know God knows every marker you're dealing with. He does. He's not lost track of you. I, I, I came over to talk to to Jeff and and Hubert because I hadn't spoken with Patty and Troy this week and I wondered how he was doing and you gave me a a pretty good report although he's got a long ways to go and I remember and and just I just want you guys to know I want us all to know God hasn't lost track of Troy we're going to look at a picture Stella's going to send me a picture this week of a little girl we prayed for for months Brooklyn Brooklyn Judy's going to send me a picture so because can see how she's doing. God hasn't lost track of her, Judy. God didn't lose track of your little one either. He's got him right with him today. Isn't it wonderful to know that the one who tracks the path of the stars? And I'm not talking about Stephen Hawking. Smart guy. The one who tracks the stars is watching after you. Does that matter? It really does to me. Now, verse 28, it describes God as being my two-year-old grandson without a nap hopped up on red Kool-Aid and Pop-Tarts, okay? Never runs down. All right, that's ridiculous. But what the what the picture is that God doesn't get tired. You know what? I can get tired. I am tired this morning. Pete kept me up too late last night. But he doesn't. Isn't it wonderful to know? Can you make this connection with me? What does it mean to you to know that God doesn't grow tired? His strength never weakens. His strength just never weakens. There, um, look with me back at one other passage here just really quickly. Go ahead, actually, to Isaiah 55. You'll recognize this when I think. Isaiah 55, 9. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Remember I talked about sometimes we kind of feign, we kind of fake understanding or we might present an understanding of something we really don't understand anything about. God gets it all. He has this way about Him, this understanding about Him that surpasses mine and surpasses yours. His strength never weakens. I can rest because He doesn't. I can cast my burden on the Lord because, according to Psalm 121, When I'm asleep at night, he is vigilant over me even while I sleep. What a beautiful thought. That he doesn't take a nap. (laughs) He doesn't, when I pray to him, he doesn't say, "Uh, Dude, can I get back with you tomorrow? I'm kind of pooped. Look at verse 29. He gives strength to the weary. Feel weary lately? He gives strength to the weary. Uh, I think the I think the uh, King James says he gives power to the faint. Is that beautiful? He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. God's truth is this: uh, it is in the weary and the weak where He, God, is the most powerful. That's a New Testament concept, and you see it here in the Old Testament. That the idea is when I am weak, he can be even stronger. I can see him better. He can work better through me. You can argue even when I'm weak, better. We tend to think weakness is... uh, not something to look for. We, t- we tend to think that when we are really weak, we need to kind of apologize to the Lord. What the Bible says is when I am weak, He can become even stronger. He gives power to the faint. That's where He's the most powerful. Verse 30, remember I talked about, I talked about the, uh, the college student who's got it all figured out? You know what? And I watch him, and I remember when I was a freshman in college, that I needed five hours of sleep. I'd go to bed at 2 and get up at 7, and I did just fine, Stan. Can't do that anymore. Can you make it on five hours of sleep? You know? Isn't it funny? But the truth is, even the young need his power. Oh, that we would all recognize that. That even the young need his strength and power. And then, of course, that beautiful verse 31 that everybody likes to quote. The key to renewed strength here is found in our source of hope. Even cocky college students need his kind of strength, so that they can soar above these kinds of things. Let me share with you just a few little things as we close. There's a uh, there there's a uh, uh, a chemical available to you that. You receive occasionally you don't even know about. It's called adrenaline. It's also called epinephrine. It's a hormone and a neurotransmitter that's produced by the body in response to a stressful situation. Adrenaline production res- results in an additional burst of energy. Occasionally, you might hear of a or read about or see in Ripley's Believe It or Not about a person who lifts a car off of someone pinned beneath it under duress, and adrenaline is the key to being able to do so. Never seen it with my eyes. I've just read about it. The rescuer, though not very big or strong, suddenly finds a rush of strength to accomplish the rescue and the task. Can I tell you something? I don't really know about all that. I, I mean, I probably should read a little more about what epinephrine and adrenaline does to your system. It makes you stronger than, than normal, uh, gives you kind of superhuman strength, but, you know, don't, don't think they're going to write a comic book about you. That's not going to probably happen. But can I tell you something? God desires to give you what I would call spiritual adrenaline. You can put that in that last blank. He would like to give you spiritual adrenaline. The only thing I can find in the scriptures that are a key to my receiving spiritual adrenaline is admitting that I need it. Admitting that, Lord, I am faint, I am weak, but I know you are strong. Okay? Now, there's a real positive passage we're going to deal with next week as we deal a little more with God's sovereignty as it relates to Jesus. In in Isaiah 61, I hope you'll be here and share it with me. Read that chapter, or you might even want to read some of the intervening chapters between 40 and 61 next week. But would you try something this week? Would you just say to the Lord in your hour of most weakness, biggest weakness, would you say to him, Lord, can I have just a shot of adrenaline today? The kind that only you can give me. I'm curious how he'll respond to that. Because here's the truth. God is faithful as well as God is sovereign. Uh, Katie. Spiritual Spiritual adrenaline. Spiritual adrenaline. It gets me through some things I never thought I could, Katie. Great question. Thank you for clarifying that. We're not talking about, Lord, I need adrenaline to lift a car off of somebody. We're talking about... I need strength to get through something that I can't make it through on my own. He gives me spiritual adrenaline. I, I believe He can prove it to be true in 28 and 31 in our lesson today. Thank you so much. I'll see you next week.